Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Since October, Los Angeles police have been searching for a killer who has strangled young women and left their bodies along grassy hillsides. We've had yet another uh, set of remains identified. This is the second one that's taken place in the last several weeks. We had no crime scene, we just had bodies. So the two of them together were a really dangerous pairing. From 1977 to 1985, Los Angeles became the center of two of the most notorious, vicious, and devastating serial killer investigations in U.S. history. The period saw 25 murders, five attempted murders, an unknown number of sexual assaults, and an entire county in a state of terror. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, The Hillside Strangler and The Night Stalker. Episode 2, The Serial Killings Begin. Graduates of Hollywood High School are like a roll call of TV and movie stars. From Judy Garland and John Huston to Lawrence Fishburne and Rita Wilson. Yet, in 1977, one of its students gained notoriety for a much sadder story. On October 31, 1977, Judith Lynn Miller is a 15-year-old and has dropped out of school. She walks Sunset Boulevard, sometimes selling her body to make money. Her face is well known to locals who often see her soliciting for work. On this day, Judith, or Judy as she is known, notices a Cadillac pull up. She approaches and gets in. The driver is an older Italian man. They drive for a few minutes and then pull over. Within seconds, another man approaches her window. 
he flashes a badge and tells Judy that the driver is actually a cop and that she's under arrest for soliciting. He tells her to step out of the car. She obeys. He then tells her to get into the back to be taken to the station. She does as she's told. The safety lock clicks into place. Judy Miller will be dead within hours. Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono had perfected their ruse. In this unsettling archive tape, Bianchi explains. Didn't kill the second one. Angelo? Where did you kill him? Right in Angelo's house. In fact, all of us were killed in Angelo's house. All of us were killed in Angelo's house. That's a great pad he's got. You're dead. The next day, her naked body is discovered dumped in a middle-class area of La Crescenta. The case falls to the sheriff's office, and the investigators find the same ligature marks on her as they did on the first body, Yolanda Washington. But there is something else, a tiny fiber on her eyelid. Evidence. The hillside murders in LA are still not making the headlines. Sadly, I think this has a lot to do with how murders of sex workers are often overlooked. I want to know if the general public was aware that something sinister was going on. So I speak with former LAPD detective Bob Grogan. That's the thing I resent the most about the media. As far as the detectives go, no, there's no difference. A murder's a murder. I worked murders of prostitutes before, and I handle it just like would do any normal murder investigation. I had as much respect for her as I had for somebody who was not. I don't think the media did initially. Uh, They wouldn't have said the victims are all prostitutes without making an investigation to find out that's not true. That was not correct statement. And it angered a lot of people. And it also put a lot of people in the position, oh, well, they're all prostitutes, ain't no goddamn big deal. You know, and that's a very dangerous occupation. People die doing it, no big deal. I'm sure a lot of people felt that way too. But the media screwed it up. They screwed it up by making that statement initially. Dr. Lois Lee was an academic working to aid sex workers during that time period. People clearly did not care about sex workers. Sex workers were not really a term in the 70s. It was just prostitutes, whores. Um, They were considered inhuman. In fact, some police departments, uh, when they found the remains, called them non-human remains. They had terms for them. Oftentimes, their murders were not investigated um, because they were not of concern. Uh, The press, I think that they were headlines, brief headlines, but there weren't really any carry out investigation. There was no intrigue. Because again, I don't think the public was interested in what happened to a prostitute. It was considered that prostitution, anyone who did that, that they were assuming the risk and that that's what happens when you prostitute and you jump in the car with strange men. Five days later, the naked body of another woman is discovered this time near a country club in Glendale. The victim is 21-year-old Lissa Caston. Ken Davis was a reporter for CBS at the time. 
Lissa worked at a, as a waitress at a health food store, never had any problems in her life, had a great future ahead of her. The aspiring ballerina was found on the grounds of a Glendale country club, and that hit home. And it was close to my house and a totally innocent young lady. The restaurant where she waited tables is very close to Hollywood. Plus, when questioned by police, her mother told investigators that her daughter had suggested moving into sex work to make some extra money. So, we have three murders in less than a month. All are connected to Hollywood. Three bodies dumped naked for all to see. The dots are there, waiting to be connected. But L.A. is a place with an abundance of crime. At this time in the 70s, there are close to a thousand murders every year. The sheer volume of cases and the fragmented police jurisdictions mean that these killings are still being looked at individually rather than as part of a pattern. The truth was, for a while, this serial killing spree was hidden among already large murder statistics, and there was more horror to come. Eight hundred miles away, in El Paso, Texas, Richard Ramirez has now grown into a wiry 17-year-old boy. Richard spends his days getting high on LSD and cocaine, and his nights burglarizing homes. He takes a job at a local Holiday Inn, where he attempts to rape at least one woman. His obsession with murder and notorious serial killers intensifies. In the 1990s, the author Philip Carlo gained the trust of Richard Ramirez and conducted a no-holds-barred interview with the killer for his book, The Night Stalker. We have recreated Ramirez's interview for you. The words are authentic and voiced by an actor. Here, he expresses his interest in Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper created an aura around himself, or maybe the media did, but it was one of mystique and a sinister character who was never identified. I remember in my childhood reading about him and I was intrigued by the way this killer, Jack the Ripper, was depicted. Wears a black cloak, fog, nighttime. The media tends to, if not glorify, but paint him in a way that is very sinister and diabolical to some of us. That is appealing. Certainly it was to me. I need to unpack what's going on here, so I speak with forensic psychiatrist Dr. Ariana Nesbitt. From a young age, Ramirez had been fascinated by the story of Jack the Ripper. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think this is so interesting, and I think this is just one of many ways in which Richard Ramirez, from a very young age, was attracted to dark things in general. He was attracted to death. He was attracted to violence. Um, he was attracted to Jack the Ripper himself. And I thought it was really interesting to figure out exactly what Richard Ramirez uh, liked about Jack the Ripper. And I don't think like is too strong of a word. I think he clearly liked him. He admired him. That's so fascinating. It's, it's almost like I know what I want to be when I grow up, a serial killer. Who can I study to be the most interesting, darkest, worst one? It's not just unlucky happenstance and brain function and bad environment. Who aspires to this? And soon, there would be another serial killing spree for Richard to obsess over. On the afternoon of November 20th, 1977, young boys are playing at a dump site near Dodger Stadium. They're looking for treasure, 
and in the failing light, among the usual mess of mattresses, household trash, and garbage bags, they spot a pair of what look like department store mannequins. Taking a closer look, they notice ants. Lots of ants. They are not mannequins. They are bodies. The bodies are those of 12-year-old Dolores Cepeda and 14-year-old Sonia Johnson, who had been reported as missing on November 13th. They are naked with signs of strangulation and sexual assault, and they have been dead for nearly a week. I return to Bob Grogan. I want to talk to you about the two very young girls who were found. Tragedy is just un unbelievable. Well, there was no crime scene. It's where the bodies were dumped. See, that's the other thing that made this case so difficult. We had no crime scene. We just had bodies. So we had we had no idea where the murder was committed, who, what, when, where, or how. We just totally empty of that, void of that information. And those two girls were dumped nude in a trash pit in Griffith Park. And I'm very fortunate their bodies were even found. They were about 30 feet below the trail, and it just tossed down there like they were garbage. There's more. Examining the bodies, investigators are forced to confront an uncomfortable truth. It would have been extremely difficult for a single individual to carry both bodies to the site. There must have been two people involved in their deaths. In this chilling audio tape, Kenneth Bianchi details how they captured the young girls. It's striking how Bianchi seems reluctant to admit how young they were. Johnson Cepeda was being out late at night. Um, were they the two young? Yes. Uh, what were their ages and all? They were 14, uh, young, 14 or 13, something like that. They were the youngest ones. Yeah. Um, hey, Jack. Johnson and Cepeda, did they occur together? They were out. Like, they were walking. out together walking, and uh, I explained to you how they were picked up. Uh, the police officer was again. For being underage, perfect. And they were taken to Angelo's house thinking it was a, a police station. Amen. Um. They were both uh, killed in the spare room. Ken Davis was a reporter at the time and recalls the murders of Dolores and Sonia. The murders of two little girls were particularly heartfelt, horrible things. At first, they were not connected to the Hillside Strangler, but a few days later they were. In fact, a witness saw the teenagers get into a car with two men outside in Eagle Rock Mall. On the same day that Dolores and Sonia are discovered, Detective Bob Grogan is also called to investigate a murder. I got a call for a murder case. I went out and investigated that. And my partner, Dick Crow, for two years and did probably 40 murders. He was one of the sharpest detectives I ever worked with. He had an intuitive sense about situations. This is a, a nude, young, white girl Sunday morning, found underneath a bush. 
it doesn't fit a lot of the scenarios of other murders that I worked. That's pretty unusual to begin with. Second of all, there were some ligature marks on her neck that were obvious. Ligature marks uh, would be caused by rope twine or even sometimes fingers or strangulation. And there were some needle marks on her arm. And I recall at the time that that kind of jumped at me and said, gee whiz, I hope I'm not dealing with a, a, a overdose. Normally, like I would any case, did a background check on her, identified her, found out she's from Sausalito, was studying to be a, uh, an automotive engineer and was a great gal. Was a really popular girl in the college. She went to the College of School and Design in Pasadena at that time. And uh, she was an excellent student. The girl is 20-year-old student Christina Weckler, who was a neighbor of Bianchi and had turned him down for a date earlier that year. What we're seeing here is a shocking escalation in killing, and it needs explaining. Coming up, we follow the trail with Bob Grogan and delve deeper into Bianchi's and Bono's psyches to get answers. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
One of the most curious things about these crime scenes is the lack of evidence of resistance. It just didn't make any sense and led to a troubling realization. Were the victims going willingly with the killer? Kenneth Bianchi and Angela Bono were not on the police's radar, but it wouldn't take long for investigators to get a sense of the killer's M.O. Bob Grogan explains. There was no physical resistance by any of the victims. Why? No, defense won't. Why? Picture of power of authority was presented, and that's why they went along as far as they went along till it was too goddamn late. The badge. I'm a police officer. There were no defense wounds on any of these girls, not one of them. So that's where the power of authority, the legal authority of being presented by a badge and knowing that I had to go along with the law, but it's too late once you're in their custody. But anyhow, that's the thing about we said, we gotta look at policemen. Power of authority is a factor in this issue. That was really intuitive of the detectives to put that together. There's no struggle, so somebody has the power of authority. And that is a very intelligent angle. The idea that the killer was someone from within law enforcement quickly spread through the Whisper Network. It was, it was to such an extent that women were afraid to pull over if a police officer tried to pull them over in a car that LAPD issued um, a notice, which I don't think they've ever done before in history, saying that if you're a woman driving in a car and a police officer tries to pull you over, you do not have to stop. Go home and call the police department. I don't think that had ever been done, but it was that hysterical. These girls have their whole lives in front of them, but it seems that just the sight of a police badge is enough to place them in the most dangerous situation imaginable, in the clutches of serial killers. There's something highly unique going on with these killers, so it's important to understand their psychological makeup. I return to forensic psychiatrist Dr. Ariana Nesbitt. One of the elements that seems so odd to me is that there was a Bizarre leap to go from kind of amateur pimps to cold-blooded killers. This is one of many things that make the Hillside Stranglers case simply fascinating. I mean, there are so many things about this case in general that really defy the normal pattern of what we would see in someone who is a, a serial sexual homicide offender. Um, that being said, escalation in general is not atypical when you look at serial sexual homicide offenders. Um, in fact, one study found that not even 14% of serial sexual homicide offenders carry out their murders and their sexual assaults in the same manner over and over again, which is what we usually think happens, right? We think that they have a ritual and that they stick with it. But actually, about 50%, maybe a little less than 50%, show an escalation in behaviors over time. And this is seen even outside of this realm of this most extreme case of a serial sexual homicide offender, where you often see offenders who gain a certain level of expertise in one type of crime 
might become more willing to commit more serious and um, probably more complicated types of crimes as they get more comfortable with the more simple methods and they recognize that, hey, I got away this time. Let me see if I could push the envelope here and let me see how far I could go because I'm getting some kind of a thrill out of this. Do you think there's an element of habituation that happens? Whatever thrill is achieved by some sort of sexual violence or actually a murder, you might not achieve that level again, so you have to ramp it up. Yeah, I think there's probably something to be said for this. And one thing to recognize is that most serial sexual homicide offenders display a degree of psychopathy. And one of the features of a psychopath is that they have a low emotional arousal. And in other words, if you put them in a brain scanner and you show them images that would normally really scare people or make them upset and it would cause a normal person's brain to light up like crazy, put a, a psychopath in the same scanner and show them the same images, that brain is going to be cold. So what you see in these individuals is that they have this long-standing pattern of trying to seek some type of stimulation. They are so prone to being bored. And it only makes sense that they are kind of chasing that high, right? Like, what can I do to possibly get my brain to light up? So they might turn to promiscuous sexual activity or drugs, and of course, criminal activity. And there does seem to be sometimes that kind of seeking of that same buzz that they got with that first killing and escalating over time to try to get there. It's important to address the most unique aspects of this case, the fact that there were two killers working together. When interviewed by psychiatrists, Bianchi hints at how this came to be. Why did Angelo kill any girls? What did he have against them? I don't know, man. You know, he just, uh, he was just an easy guy to get with the program, you know? I gave him the idea and he went with it all the way, you know, he's my kind of person. That's, we should have more fucking people like that in this world and we'd have less problems. Despite what Bianchi intimates, there really doesn't seem to have been a dominant figure in this pairing. Dr. Ariana Nesbitt explains further. Can you detail the psychological makeup of Bianchi and Bono? Absolutely. So. Bianchi and Bono are really interesting to compare and contrast. In some ways, they have a lot in common. You know, both ended up being diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and you know, psychopathy, and both were labeled as sexual sadists. Um, Bono did also get the additional label as a pedophile, which seems to be accurate when you look at his records. I mean, there were reports of him you know, starting as a child and then really through adulthood of being uh, very sexually aroused and um, abusing young children. Um, but when you look beyond that, they're actually two very different individuals, um, and they display these different aspects of, you know, the psychopath. So Bianchi was described by many people as this charismatic used car salesman, which is, you know, one of the ways that I learned um, to detect sometimes a psychopath. So someone who is very glib and charming, and he seemed to be the talker, you know, when committing these crimes. He would be the one out there talking to the girls, and it might have been his idea, right, to be posing as police officers because he was very conning and um, able to put up these different fronts. Whereas Bono, um, you know, he was definitely psychopathic as well. There's no question about that. Um, 
he was more of your standard criminal in a lot of ways. Um, he also demonstrated very strong sexual sadism at a very young age. Um, people say that at age 14, he was seen bragging to his friends about sodomizing a young girl um, and really degraded women and just, just leaned into this violence. And he saw himself as kind of a mafia member and this big tough guy. Um, so the two of them together were a really dangerous pairing. You know, you've got this charm mean um, talker in Bianchi and then uh, this sexual sadist um, bad boy criminal who Bianchi looked up to in Buono and the two of them together just was a really dangerous combination. How often do you see or, or how unusual is it to have two people committing crimes like this together? This was one of the most fascinating elements of this crime spree because when you think about it Murderers in and of themselves are very rare. You know, murder is a pretty rare phenomenon, thank goodness, right? And then a serial murderer is even more rare. You know, someone who doesn't just act one time and kill someone out of this over overwhelming rage, but someone who does it over and over again. Then you throw murder with a sexual element on there, it gets even more rare. And then to find two people to do that together is just almost unheard of. Now, of course, we do have people who have committed serial homicides in the past and they've teamed up with a partner, but usually what you've seen there, they've got this one dominant figure who is driving a much more passive person along in their crimes. But in this case, it seemed that both of them were bringing different aspects of this criminal drive to be committing these, these crimes. Another way to think about it, you know, these individuals were both diagnosed with sexual sadism, and that's something that's usually is pretty private. You know, that's not something you want to go uh, go advertising to other people that you were having these really obviously deviant sexual desires and drives. So to not only share that with someone, but then to happen to find that this other person you're sharing it with is also just as interested in these deviant sexual behaviors as you are and then both of you are willing to risk your livelihood i mean i mean these are capital offenses right and committed together i mean it's just it's just hard to wrap your head around how this happened especially taking into consideration that at the time of these offenses both were seen as pretty you know, upstanding members of society now of course they had their dark deviant um activities they were doing on the side but you know buono had this upholstery shop um bianchi was you know helping him with that and had a girlfriend friend and a young baby and was seen as an upstanding member of society. The whole thing is really unbelievable. It's so creepy how they can appear normal. They can have high-functioning elements to their personality, and yet they are some of the, the worst, most deviant predators that we have. This veneer of respectability makes it doubly hard for detectives such as Bob Grogan to track down the individuals responsible. You gotta remember, there's a difference between Bono and Bianchi. I gotta clarify this. Bono is a sexual predator. If it has a hole, he'll put his penis in it. Doesn't make a difference how old you are, who you are, or what you are, even if you're related. He is a sexual predator. The difference between Bianchi, Bianchi is a killer. He took them to kill him. So you have two different people here. You have a guy who likes to kill. He wasn't in it for sex. Bono was. There's another side of this job as well. You have to speak to those whose loved ones have been killed in the worst possible way. You did this with Christina Weckler's family. How was that? I met her father. 
And that's always the toughest damn job to do working homicide, meeting the parents. Tell me about that, if you don't mind. You've got to do it. In Charlie's case, excuse me, I call him Charlie. He's gone now, too. I had to get together with him, discuss it with him, and I also had to take him to the autopsy. Parents have to make the identification. That's, that's the way it is. It's, that's the toughest part of the whole investigation, that part. He did. Uh, we went and decided we'd go have a couple of drinks. We sat there and had lunch and tossed a few down. And Charlie was very, very angry. He worked for the National Geographic. And he also lived in Kauai, as well as Sausalito. And anyhow, he and I kind of hit it off a little bit. I said, Charlie, we'll catch the son of a bitch. We'll catch him. No question in my mind. In the next episode, another brutal murder triggers a chain of connections. The hunt for the Hillside Strangler begins, and Richard Ramirez moves to L.A. Mind of a Monster, The Hillside Strangler, and The Night Stalker is produced by Arrow Media for ID. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.